let me dispel a big misconception that a lot of people have that are in e-commerce and haven't gone to retail yet. They do not want to crush you. They do not want to bring you harm. They're not looking to bankrupt you. They're not looking to send all your product back on your doorstep. And I hear all this stuff again and again and again. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Australian Seller Podcast. My name is Chris Thomas, and I'll be your host. And this is the show where we talk about all things Amazon and e-commerce, whether it be private label, wholesale, dropshipping, and how you can generate a recurring income, either on the side or as a full-time gig. G'day, g'day, guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Australian Seller Podcast. Today's episode is episode 86, and this week I'm joined by Timothy Bush from tlbconsulting.com, where he helps brands get their products into retail stores throughout the United States. Tim used to be a buyer for companies like Bed Bath & Beyond, Office Depot, Barnes & Noble, Toys R Us and a bunch more before starting his own consulting company about 11 years ago and he also happens to have an excellent podcast on the shelf so tune in for that. Now in our conversation today we discuss topics like is bricks and mortar dying in the United States with all the doom and gloom stories that we get in the press. Uh, when's the right time for an e-commerce Amazon seller to approach a B&M store or bricks and mortar store? What are buyers looking for when considering to stock your products in their store or stores? What kind of margins do they expect? Packaging, logistics, and, and heaps more. Anyway, just before we get on with the show, some announcements. So I'm holding a meetup here in Melbourne on Thursday, February the 27th at WeWork, which is at 120 Spencer Street, Melbourne, level number 22, and it's starting at about 5.30. And the topic is a bit more advanced this time. So it's about using advanced keyword research techniques to discover product ideas on Amazon. And I'll be throwing in a little bit of Brandon Young's keyword research strategies, I suppose his competitive strategies, as well as my own, I guess, secret system for finding keywords and phrases with strong demand and low competition. So I try and keep it really simple. Um, it's pretty effective and it follows the basic laws of economics, so supply and demand. And it's sponsored by Retail Global. We love them. And of course, Payoneer with Nathan and uh, Remy. And they'll all be there with a bit of a Q&A panel at the end as well. So, so grab your tickets over at theaustralianseller.com forward slash global. Uh, of course, India. It's coming up fast. So join me for the India Delhi Fair in April. And as you know, Megla runs the India Sourcing Trip, which is over at indiasourcingtrip.com. And of course, Tim Jordan, currently running the Helium 10 Project X case study with Bradley Sutton, will be there as a coach, as will Gary Huang, uh, Mark Jolly, myself, of course, and many others. Uh, so that's on uh, April the 13th through to the 20th, uh, 2020. Uh, it's in Delhi. So register now. Time's actually running out. So you need to book a flight and you'll need to get a visa. So get your skates on. Uh, you know, this isn't a last minute thing. You need to act now. All right. Enough from me. Let's get on with today's interview with Timothy Bush. And welcome back to another episode of the Australian Seller Podcast. And today I'm delighted to welcome Timothy Bush from Florida, all the way from Florida. And he's from TLB Consulting. And he is here to teach us or at least educate us about how to get our products into big box retail. So, Timothy, without any further ado, could you introduce yourself and uh, give us a bit of your background and what got you into retail? Yeah, well, thanks for Chris for having me. I appreciate it and uh, glad to be here. Yeah, so you said it right. My name's Tim Bush. I, I uh, uh, have owned and run the company TLB Consulting for the last 11 years. And I'm also the host of the podcast On the Shelf. Um, so both of those things uh, keep me pretty busy. 
Um, I got into retail. Actually, it was my first job out of college, uh, you know, and I just kind of worked my way up in retail. So I worked for in the U.S. here. I worked for companies like Bed Bath & Beyond, Office Depot, um, Barnes & Noble, Toys R Us. And uh, wow. Yeah, so I got a lot of knowledge of, you know, what it's like to run a big box retailer, what it's like when goods come in, how you merchandise goods, how goods sell through on the floor, what it's like to, you know, what different types of merchandising vehicles there are and, and how you take advantage of those to make the most out of your product and, and you know, merchandising and boxes and packaging and all of that. And, and then later in my career, I decided I wanted to understand how products actually got here. Um, so I, I went into the wholesale side of things and was VP of sales for a couple different companies. The last one, uh, was human touch where I sold, you know, $4,000 robotic massage chairs to companies like Costco and sharper image. Um, yeah. and then, uh, um, when I was finished with that, that's when I started TLB consulting and originally TLB consulting was really based on Costco only. And uh, it, we were experts in Costco and we helped companies understand how Costco works because Costco has a specific business model and it's not right for everybody. But we quickly learned that all the people that were coming to us really were not ready to go to Costco. And so we had to open up a different part of our business to start helping companies gain distribution in big box retail, retail in general. So eventually they could go on to sell at a Costco or uh, or whatever their um, main retailer yeah. that they wanted to get into was. Well, it sounds like you had plenty of experience with all of those other <laughs> companies that you mentioned, Bed Bath Beyond, Toys R Us, etc. So yeah, I can see how you can easily pivot very quickly and uh, help people get their feet wet by the sound of it before they really start to do, uh, will move a lot of units I'd expect into something like Costco. Um, Costco's just started up here in Australia. I think they've got about three or four giant warehouses so yeah, they're pretty popular here. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, I helped. Uh, I, I think when they had one store, I had an Australian client that we helped get their uh, um, their. Uh, I believe it was like a brownie mix. Honestly, I can't remember. It was so long ago. I, I mean, I know Costco's been in Australia for some time, but they've you know one location, then you know years later two locations. So, uh, mm. but yeah, years ago we helped them get a brownie mix into Costco Australia. How good's that? Because I hear too that in Australia, I'm not sure if this is happening in the United States, and I know we're going off on a tangent here, but uh, Costco, last I heard, was actually looking to get into e-commerce, which is uh, which is a huge development here. Is that uh, are they doing something similar in the United States, trying well, to take I, on Amazon? Yeah, well, well, I don't know about if they're if they're trying to take on Amazon. I don't even know if Amazon's take onable. But uh, <laughs> uh, Costco's been in the e-commerce game in the U.S. for quite some time, and they have a very very robust email list uh, and a, a great following uh, for their e-commerce line here. So uh, a lot of times Costco will test products out on e-commerce and see how they do. And they have so many different promotional vehicles uh, uh, available when you have products online. And because, you know, Costco doesn't carry, you know, they're not interested necessarily like a, a Walmart or an Amazon, they're, they're not looking to put all 50 of your products on their on their website. They're looking maybe to put one. And so the products that are on Costco.com um, sell really well. They promote them really, really well. And uh, it's a good gateway into the warehouse. All right. Well, let's hop into it then because I've got a few questions here. I hope you wouldn't mind helping me with. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> so e-commerce has just seems to have exploded. It just continues to grow. Does that mean that bricks and mortar is dying or is it still pretty strong? 
<laughs> That's a common <laughs> question, I think. You know, I mean, I, you know, my dad, uh, who was an airline pilot uh, for Delta, um, told me once. He called me one day and he said, "Yeah, he said, man, I dinged the airplane." And I'm thinking, "What do you mean you ding? How do you ding an airplane?" <laughs> um, you know, he brought it in too steep and maybe he scraped the tail cone, you know, landing or whatever. But he always told me that, you know, accidents in airplanes happen all the time, little tiny accidents. But if something major happens and the industry starts looking at it, they'll start to see all these little things happening. And I really think that that's the way e-commerce is right now. E-commerce, Amazon, it's the big buzzword. But in reality, especially here in the U.S., e-commerce, uh, Amazon in general, holds 50% of the e-commerce space, but only 8% of all of retail uh, okay. here, here in the US. So it's still a really tiny part. And believe it or not, uh, brick and mortar is not dying. It's actually growing um, because millennials, which is the biggest demographic here in the US, want to go in and touch and feel and talk to somebody. They want to know where their products came from. They want to make sure that they're genuine. So there's a, a huge resurgence. And I think one of the things that's happening here is mm. we're seeing some of specialty retail coming back uh, because a lot of the brick and mortar retailers are dying. They've either expanded too fast or uh, they didn't predict the um, sales slowdown. Uh, so they've had to sell off a lot of their stores. And what it's doing is it's giving rise to the ability for people to go and start again their own locations, smaller retail stores where they can give that uh, real concierge service that I think mm -hmm. Americans are wanting. I don't know about Australia, but I think people want to go into a store and talk to somebody and say, hey, um, you know, and I think people are tired of buying something online and they get it back and it's not what they thought. And, uh, and, and so, no, to answer your question long windedly, uh, no, I don't think it's dying. I actually think there's opportunity for it to grow. I think where we're struggling mm -hmm. in the U.S., specifically is poor buying you know our buyers are younger and younger they understand the business less and less they look more at the numbers and not at the products they're scared to step out on things whereas you know 10 15 years ago they wanted an exclusive they wanted something to stand out they were hungry to really take something on their own and really make it you know something you know, but in order to do that, you got to have you got to be willing to have a couple flops, you know, uh, yeah. things go wrong. And today they're just not really willing to to do that. So I think they're a little timid, which is mm. what's causing which is what ca is causing the retail slowdown. You know, if I was in charge of it, I would have what I call like spec ops buying teams, you know, that I would give them, hey, look, you live in a 90 day world. I want you to find the hottest thing, get it on the shelf in less than a month. And when it's sold through, I want the next hottest thing. And that's just not what you find at retailing where you're not finding the next hottest thing at retail. You're finding it online. And uh, and so it's a pivot that they need to make. So you're saying that it's there's a real sense of well, risk averseness, I guess. I think the, so. the buyers are risk averse in terms of, you know, they're really just trying to play a safe, safe hand. In some instances, for sure. So, all right, well, then let's sort of get to a little bit more nuts and bolts. And if a retailer is, I guess, strictly e-commerce, let's say that they're an Amazon retailer or they they do a bit of a combination between e-commerce and Amazon marketplace and e-commerce, um, when's the right time for an e-commerce seller to start thinking about moving into retail? Is there ever a, a, a good time or a bad time for that? Yesterday. <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I think that, uh, so I always put a 200 unit 
minimum on there. So I, I think you really need to have sold 200 units to people you don't know, at least 200 units, because I feel like 200 units, if you had a real big problem, if there was something going on with your product that was unforeseen, 200 anonymous people would probably be able to tell you about it. Um, mm -hmm. If you're under 200 units, yeah, wait till you get over that. And, and by the time, by the time you go over 200 on Amazon, it's going to continue to flow. But retail is not a sprint. It's a, it's a marathon and, and there's relationships mm -hmm. that have to be built in and there's steps that have to be taken. And so the longer you wait to start taking those steps, the further behind you're going to be. And, and, and honestly, Chris, I, I hear this all the time is somebody will say, I want to be in retail. And what they really mean is I want to be in retail right now. And so mm -hmm. they're finally ready. And so they come to me and say, I want to be in retail. Well, we're still quite a ways away from them actually being in retail. And so when people ask me, when should I start right now, no matter where you're mm -hmm. at, it's never too early to start looking at what you need to do to start introducing your product to buyers and retailers. Cool. Just on that 200 units then, what are you doing there? You're looking at reviews. And then, that, and I guess the second part of the question would be, um, does selling on Amazon, for example, and getting good reviews on a product, does that actually help when you're approaching a big box retailer or indeed a specialty retailer or indeed an independent retailer? Do they, is that something that you can point out and say, look, we've got very satisfied customers on Amazon, check out our reviews. Does that help in terms of selling or being able to convince a retailer to be able to take your product into their store? Yeah, I think it certainly does now more than it maybe a couple of years ago. You know, once Amazon really cracked down on, you know, trading money or product for reviews, uh, I think the reviews have become a little bit more honest. And, and mm -hmm. I think retailers really wonder what's going on if you're not on Amazon, if you're not, if you don't have any reviews. I think it, it screams out louder to them if you're not mm. there, then it does worry them that you are. Um, it also mm. allows them the opportunity to see where you stand on your pricing. Are you in a race to the bottom? Are you changing your price all the time? Or are you holding your price and you're really selling a product line? You're not just, uh, or you really have a brand. You're not just having a product and you don't care where the price goes. Yeah, yeah. What about if you're offshore, let's say that you're an Australian seller, you sell on Amazon in the United States, what's the best way in to sell or to approach big box and small retailers in the United States if you don't live in the US? Is that possible? Yeah, TLB Consulting is the best way. <laughs> it sounds like it. Right. Um, no, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we live in a global economy these days. There's nothing that can't be done remotely. Uh, you know, if you live in Australia, the only thing that's going to really wear on you is being up in the middle of the night uh, and uh, and trying to run a business 24 seven because during the day you're running a business, during the night you're running a retail business. And so sure, it helps to have a partner here in the US. I've had many Australian clients over the years uh, and um, it, it makes a difference if, if you're working with somebody here. Also, culturally, uh, there's differences. No matter where you go uh, in the world, uh, you know, I was just in, Last week, I was in uh, Germany, and then I was in the UK. And you know, even though even though we understand each other, we're not struggling to understand each other um, uh, language wise. There's just cultural differences. There's you know, hey, it's a it's a it's a boot. It's not a trunk. If, I mean, and so I think it helps somebody who's uh, to have somebody culturally understanding 
what the buyers are looking for here in the U.S. as opposed to maybe what Australian buyers would be having or needing. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. All right. So what are, what are retailers expecting then from a brand that's approaching them with a product or a line of products? What do they, what do they want from us? <laughs> you know, and I think it, it, let me dispel a big misconception that a lot mm-hmm. of people have that are in e-commerce and haven't gone to retail yet. They do not want to crush you. They do not want to bring you harm. They're not looking to bankrupt you. They're not looking to send all your product back on your doorstep. And I hear all this stuff again and again and again. Mm-hmm. They do, however, want to get the best deal with the best terms that they can. That's their job. So uh, what they want from us is they want a product that has uniques. I mean, they get hundreds of calls and emails every single day with products. And because of the birth of Amazon, a lot of these products are exactly the same, you know, and somebody has a, you know, they have a, you know, just a generic product that they bought off Alibaba and now they're selling it well on Amazon. And all of a sudden they think it should be able to go to retail. Well, there's hundreds of products just like it. So one of the things that they want, Chris, is they want uniques. What is it that's going to stand out about this product that's going to, and here's a big thing, drive additional sales to my category. Now, a buyer's never going to ask you for that. And here's a total nugget for 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 your listeners. Mm-hmm. Buyers are never going to say, I need additional sales for my category. But what they want is additional sales. They don't want cannibal, cannibalized sales. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't want to hang your product next to this product. And now we're doing your your products doing 50% of what the other product used to do. That's not what they're looking for. They want additional sales. And so if you can show them, if you can speak to that, then you start speaking their language. Next, uh, they're not going to tell you about this either, but every buyer has a margin uh, requirement. They all have a boss. Their boss is wanting increased sales and they also want increased margin. I just had this conversation with a client earlier today and they were asking me, well, what do you mean by they want to increase the margin of their category? And, and so this is the way I explained it. Let's say a buyer has a margin requirement from the company that they need to hit in their category of 48%. Wow. Products, products that come in under 48%. So if they're looking at a product that has 46% margin, they know that that's going to be a drain on their average margin. If they can find a product that has 52% margin, then they know that that's going to increase the overall cost average margin across their category, and that will make them happy. Now, that's not the end of it. I mean, the product has to be good and have uniques and this and that, but they're going to be far more inclined to take products that have better than the margin that their average margin they're trying to hit. If it's better than that, it'll drive margin for them. If they can show them how they can drive sales to their category, uh, a good way to do that is, for instance, if you find a way to have a, you know, I have a client that that makes a product that goes on the top of diaper cream tubes to make it so that you don't have to use your fingers to smear diaper cream on your baby's behind. Now that product sits right next to diaper cream. It's not a, it's not a cannibalization. It's not taking money away from the diaper cream category. Every time somebody buys diaper cream and then buys one of these things to put on it, it's actually increasing the sales of that category and it holds a better than 50% margin. So it's driving margin as well. So it's a complementary product in that instance. Indeed. Mm, and an upsell. 
So how do you find out then what the margins are of you know, what, what the margins are that a buyer is actually looking for in terms of okay if we've got if we want to you know if we've got forty eight percent how do you know to sort of position yourself at fifty two? Well, not everybody can just position themselves where they need to be to mm. um, to make the margin requirement. I mean, I know average margins across different categories in retailers just because I've been in the business 22 years. And so I, I have averages that I look at. If you don't know any of that, there's no way to know. So I mm. can tell you that buyers want more than 50% if they can get it. If it's electronics, they want more than 35% if they can get it. If it's uh, chemicals like cleaning supplies, they want in the 60s if they can get it. Wow. So it's just understanding, having talked to hundreds of buyers over the years, uh, that I know that information. How you would find that out, you would need to get to, with somebody that knows. Um, yeah. And it can help you with that. And that's why it's so important when you're sourcing your products, you have to look at a 7X or even a 10X multiplier from your base cost at your factory. Not your landed cost, but your base cost. You know, I talk to people all the time that are trying to get by and trying to go to retail with three times, you know, three X their cost or four X their cost. There's just not mm -hmm. enough. You might be able to sell that on your website or even make a little bit of money on Amazon. But at four X, there's just not enough margin in there to put a 50% retailer in there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're saying then that if uh, you're sourcing something for five bucks packaged and delivered to a retailer, you're going to need to sell it for at least 35 to 50. That needs to be the retail price, yeah? Well, I'm saying, so yeah, so I'm saying if you buy it from your factory at the factory door at $2, then that should yep. retail at about 20 bucks, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, can we chat packaging? Yeah, of like, course. What, so with the with packaging, what, what do retailers look for in terms of, you know, packaging? Is, is eco-friendly like super popular at the moment or are people still expecting you know, really, really fancy packaging on, on retail products. So I think eco-friendly helps. It's not a, it's, it's not a deal breaker and it's not a deal maker. Uh, mm -hmm. If it works for you and is in line with your company mission and goals, then I think you need to be, I think you need to go down that line. If, if your company mission talks about eco-friendly, but your packaging is all cumbersome with styrofoam and that's going to look mm -hmm. weird. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, buyers are more interested, honestly, that the product shows up the way it's supposed to look. So uh, they want it to be, they want it to be packaged well and so that it travels well. And, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of times uh, when you're making your packaging, people forget about the structural part of packaging and structural is the inside of the packaging and how the product is held inside the box. And uh, in the era or in the era of, of e-commerce and dropship, uh, we forget about that. We're just like, yeah, man, just put it in a poly bag and, you know, they'll throw it in an envelope or a box. And sometimes it shows up okay and sometimes it doesn't. But when you're selling it to retail, it has to go through, it has to show up on a pallet. And then they're going to break down the pallet and open up the cases and throw it in a basket and take the basket out to the retail shelf and put it on the It has to mm. be touched several times. And if it's not secured inside the box, when the buyer or the consumer finally opens it up, that experience is going to be lacking. And so you yeah. have an opportunity when a consumer opens up a package, there's two, you have two real, really two opportunities. One is to wow them with that experience. And mm. the second is to disappoint them. And when you disappoint them, it affects both you and the retailer because they hold both accountable. You know, a good example of that is 
Apple. You know, when you open up an app, any Apple product, yeah. no matter what it is, it doesn't disappoint. The experience is is key. And in the era of, I use the word era again, I'm sorry, I'll figure out a different word. But <laughs> in today's time frame, uh, yeah. you know, with un, with these all these unboxing videos on YouTube, the you know, my daughter, for instance, we, we were buying her a Surface at the Microsoft store, and they actually un took the cellophane off of it as they were walking out because they thought she needed their help uh, to set it up. You know, first of all, there's no 16 year old that needs any store clerk's help setting up their computer. Um, let's just mm. be clear about that. Secondly, she was horrified. She's like, I made them go back and get another one because she wanted to unwrap it. She wanted to unbox it. And even oh. the cellophane being gone was not okay with her. And so, yeah. Um, and so that's a big part of it, that, ex that experience. So you got to keep, you know, you got to understand about the structural inside part. Is drop testing still a thing for traditional retail bricks and mortar? It is. It is. Yeah. All right. Distribution, getting your products into a retail partner sounds like, you know, we've got the deal done. Um, they've ordered a certain amount of quantity of, of our units. How, how does that look? I mean, do you need to distribute? Let's say that's a chain that you've you've managed to secure a contract with. Do you need to deliver to every single store a certain amount, or can you deliver to a single warehouse that they might have, and then they take care of the rest? Or how does that look? What does it look like? Yeah, it could be a combination of all. Well, first of all, it could be a combination of the two. It could be just one, or it could be the other. It just depends on what retailer you're selling into. So it's also important that you read through your vendor agreement, your contract, your routing guide, all those things are gonna tell you how you deliver product to the retailer. For instance, Costco is what's called a cross-stock company. So no product ever sits at Costco. You, you, they have, I think, I honestly don't know how many DCs they have anymore, maybe 13 in the US. So you ship to their DC, it, it, the truck backs up, the pallets come off the truck, they go across the dock, directly into a Costco truck and out to a store. Once they get to that where sorry, not store, but warehouse. Once they get to that warehouse, they get unloaded off the off the truck and they get staged and but they don't get put into steel or they don't get uh, put into the back room. They just get staged and they all go out onto the floor the very next day. So they're wow. they're never sitting. If you sell to let's say Bed Bath and Beyond, you may sell initially into their warehouses and it'll get distributed to the stores, but once it's in the stores, all the stores order on their own. So from that moment on, mm. you'll be getting individual POs from individual stores and you'll be sending them out directly to the stores. So it just depends on on the retailer. Yeah. So, and then I guess you've got to figure that into your cost, right? So you need to understand what you're getting yourself into once you've, well, what, I'd, I'd expect why you're putting the contract together or why you're negotiating the contract in terms of, you know, it's going to cost, to send 20 units to a store in Florida versus, you know, 15 units to a store in Seattle, uh, that, that might have an implication on your bottom line. Mm. Yeah. You certainly, when you're doing your pricing model and you're before you quote them, uh, mm. you need to understand their distribution model so that you can uh, put that into your pricing strategy. So if, if you're ever in mm. front of a retailer and they say, so what's the price on this? Here's another nugget. So triple net means net, net, net means, that's the very base price before we add anything, because I don't know anything about your company. I don't know what your program costs are. I don't know what you're, mm. you, you're going to buy FOB or deliver. I don't know anything. So here's my mm. base cost with nothing built in. It's called triple net, or it could be called dead net. Uh, and if you quote that price, that means whatever they ask you to do after that, you can always requote. If you quote 
and you don't tell them it's dead net or triple net and they're, that's the price they're going to think that they're getting. And then they're going to say, well, you know, we have all these things that we need to be added in there. So you certainly yeah. need to take those things into account before you actually give them a quote. If you're just starting out, you've sold your 200 units on Amazon, got some decent reviews. Is it better to go straight to the big chains or is it better just to get your feet slightly wet with individual stores or retailers or maybe just a small chain? Great question. So there's something that I call a sales story. And and a sales story is just like any story. It has a start to it uh, as you get going, a middle, and then not really an end. It it just continues to go. And and your sales story includes the process that your product has taken. And a lot of times people come to me and they say, I want to get into Target. Well, what have you done? You Tell me a little bit about your sales story. Well, I haven't sold it anywhere. Well, let's just put ourselves in the buyer's shoes at, at Target. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you shelf space on a product that hasn't sold to one person yet. So it doesn't have a story, but if I were to say, yeah, well, I started in my own website, I graduated to Amazon, my product grew, you know, 14% month over month over month on Amazon, uh, and is still doing well. I then, I then, uh, transitioned from there into some, uh, uh let's say specialty retail, mom and pop retailers, uh, you know, privately mm-hmm. owned specialty retail. And, uh, uh we've been. Um, you know, adding about five or 10 of these a month over the last year. And we have about a 70% uh, a reorder rate from our specialty retailers right now. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a story. And that means every step of the way, we've been increasing, we've been making changes, we've been going up. Now we're in specialty retail, and it's sold through and they're starting to reorder it uh, at about a 70% rate. That is a story that a buyer can really relate to. Re- yeah, grab onto and say, yeah, that makes that makes sense. You're right. Yeah, big box is kind of the next logical step for that. Yeah. Okay. So the answer then to the question is probably better to start small, and so you can actually build your sales story while you're building your your retail ambitions. Yeah, and I think that yeah, I mean, <laughs> I keep telling these stories and not answering the question, but yeah, the answer to your question is yeah. I think if we could do it in a perfect world we would move through our own website to e-commerce, including Amazon, from there to specialty, from specialty to regional, regional to big box, big box to club, let's say. What's, sorry, what's club? Club would be Costco, BJ's Wholesale, club. Yeah. What about Walmart? I mean, they're they're enormous too, right, in the United States? Walmart is enormous. And, uh, you know, uh, I always recommend to my clients that you have a really good solid sales portfolio before you go to Walmart because Walmart will just they'll they'll take up a lot uh, of your time and of your product and they're going to demand a lot and mm. what you never want to have happen is that let's say 80% of your let's say your company does 10 million dollars 80% of that is Walmart and then Walmart all of a sudden asks you to do something that either you can't physically do it or you don't want to do it and maybe it is lowering the price yet again and you just don't want to do that but you're up against, well, if I say no to Walmart and I lose this business, 80% of my company is now in jeopardy. So mm. I don't want to let Walmart get ahead of the rest of my, uh, the rest of, of what I'm doing. So I want to create a good distribution channel network that if I lose mm. Walmart, I'm back to my, let's say I'm doing 10 million. So I drop back to 5 million, but it's not the end of my business. All right. So you don't have all the eggs in one proverbial basket. You've really got to make sure that you're not too reliant on any one particular retailer. 
And that's the problem with Amazon sellers right now, yeah. right? They're yeah. you know yeah. doing uh, yeah, they're doing half a million dollars a month on Amazon, and and they think hey, this is it, and then all of a sudden their account mm-hmm. gets frozen. You know, I had a client that uh, uh, they sold toys, and so eighty percent of their business for the whole year for the whole company came in in the fourth quarter. Well, they got mm-hmm. inactive. They got a whole line of their products deactivated for the first two and a half weeks of the fourth quarter. Cost them over a million dollars, and. Yeah. Uh, now, luckily, we were working on getting them into retail, so they had started to diversify. But you know, deactivation mm. never comes at a good time, and particularly with toys on Amazon. Yeah, I've, you know, I've heard some horror stories of uh, toy re- Amazon toy retailers being totally, you know, screwed over over the uh, fourth quarter. Yeah, which is obviously the most important time of the year, and they're left with huge amounts of inventory that they're not able to sell. So it's not just uh, getting your account suspended. It's also category restrictions that are suddenly imposed and all sorts of other things that can, you know, impact what's happening on Amazon. So I think any opportunity that makes financial sense to, you know, explore other channels aside from Amazon uh, is a good idea. But what do you do about things like channel conflict? Let's say that, um, you know, trying to maintain an RRP on Amazon and, you know, particularly if you're selling as a, as a first-party seller or a vendor and Amazon's starting to control the prices, you know, the map, and you don't, and now you're starting to have a situation where you might be in at, say, Target and the price at Amazon is cheaper than what Target is selling it for. So Target insists that you drop the price to them to match what Amazon's selling it for. And, you know, you can just say, is that a, is that a common issue for retailers? Yeah, it used to be. Uh, I spent an mm-hmm. entire year about, I don't know, five years ago, uh, transitioning mm-hmm. all my clients from vendors to sellers. And I can confidently tell you that you will not get into retail or stay in retail if you're a vendor on Amazon. You mm-hmm. have to be a seller to be able yeah. to diversify because uh, Amazon has even told me to my face, not to my face, but over the phone, um, you signed away your right to tell us what we can and can't sell your product for. We have the right to drop it to whatever we want. We own it. And mm. uh, and retailers simply won't play in a sandbox where there's price inconsistency. They can't do it because they can't constantly call out to their stores and say, hey, lower the price. Hey, raise the price. Hey, lower the price. They just can't do that. No, I understand. In fact, I'm having a meeting this afternoon with a company here in Australia that's a vendor to Amazon facing exactly the same issues. So my strong recommendation to them will be to see if they can get out of the first P relationship they have and go 3P and um, start controlling what's going on. Anyway, that's enough about me. Um, so are there any other things that online retailers could or need to consider that we haven't covered that you could maybe drop some any any extra little nuggets that might help? Yeah, I think that you have to be committed. So if, if you decide that retail, brick and mortar retail is going to be a strategy of yours, uh, you have to understand that the immediate gratification that you enjoy on Amazon, uh, where you can look at your stats and things are selling daily and things are happening and I can put up a new product on Amazon and start to see it happen, that's not going to exist in regular retail. Buyers are going to turn down your product for no good reason and you can't get you know, upset about that. You have to go on to the next one and uh, and the next one and the next one. And then eventually somebody's going to take it. And then once one person takes it, then the next one, then the next one. But it takes time. It's a different uh, strategy. And if you haven't decided, made a decision that you're committed and this is where you want to go, a lot of times you'll give up on it because it isn't as easy as just putting stuff up on on Amazon. Mm. Uh, That's one thing. And then second thing is remember, 
that because we're global now, uh, retailers have sourcing people all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. They can get a hold of products. That's not a big problem for them. Uh, it's not like when I started in this business and the only way retailers could get products is if somebody like me showed up and, and you know, I was like Santa Claus. What, what did you bring? Where did you <laughs> from? Uh, today they have Santa Claus all over the place and, uh, mm. and they're sourcing for them. So what they really need is first of all, stuff they can't get a hold of. And secondly, they need a company to do business with. And remember, mm. just because you have a product on Amazon doesn't mean you're a company and doesn't mean you're a brand. So you need to, you need to start working on branding your products and creating a company and companies advertise. They, they have a, uh, they have, um, uh, active social media accounts. They uh, are. They have a look and feel to them that's consistent across their product, their packaging, their uh, website. And you don't have to have all this. Like I'm not saying go and hunker down and try to get all this right now. But that's what you should be building towards. What you want is to present your product, your company, and then also your customers, your zealots, your influencers the people that are actually going to help drive business into these retail locations. A retailer is just, sorry, one last question. A retailer is expecting any kind of exclusivity. I wish. They used to. You know, it used to be, you know, a, a buyer would see something, they'd be like, man, I want that. And I want it for exclusive for six months. But today, they're real, all they really are asking is, is anybody else selling it? And if they're not, they want to wait until somebody else is actually uh, taking that risk. And so, yeah. I wish that we had buyers back that would say, I, you know, I see genius. I'm, I mean, I knew the buyer that bought uh, 90210 posters, you know, back in, you know, back in the day and had those in, in their, in Bed Bath & Beyond first. They made millions and millions of dollars, but they had the foresight to just go deep on that one product. And then when it was over, it was over. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I wish, but no, not really asking for exclusivity. Not so much anymore. No. Timothy, thank you so much for your time today and teaching us. <laughs> it's awesome. And <laughs> I just want to say, obviously, a big thanks. And how can we get in touch with you? Yeah, so super easy. The only thing you really need to remember is uh, my website, T is in Tom, L is in Larry, B is in boy, consulting.com. And from there, you can get to my podcast. You can get to my coaching, my consulting, anything that you really want to know uh, about how to get a hold of me or what to do, you can find on that website. I'll just say a big plus one for your podcast. I was just listening to the interview that you did with Kiri Masters last year and uh, I've also had on my show as well. And yeah, just, yeah, it's a great podcast if you're considering getting into retail in any way, shape or form. Uh, So yeah, thanks again for coming on the show and yeah, super grateful to you and hope our paths cross again soon. Yeah, my pleasure, Chris. Thanks for for having me and uh, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Links and show notes for this episode can be found over at theaustralianseller.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or your favorite podcast platform. Sign up to my email over at theaustralianseller.com and I'll send you a note each time I publish a new podcast episode. Thanks so much again for listening.